our culture has rejected the objective biblical declaration that God created humanity in his own image as male and female and has embraced in its place a subjective, unproven secular philosophy called gender theory. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does the Bible have to say about gender and sexuality? Should Scripture be the final authority on such issues? Or can believers also consider current scientific studies and societal definitions? Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part seven for us from his current series, Trending Versus Truth. When you consider the hot topics of our day, the issues of gender and sexuality might be near the top. And over the next six programs of this current series, Tom will present the biblical response to cultural views on gender theory, identity, and expression. And you'll discover how the church and all believers ought to respond to those who actively suppress the truth. Let's find out more as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Today, we want to begin to look at the huge issue in our culture surrounding the gender question. This week, I read a number of disturbing examples of our culture's concerted efforts to erase all traces of what Scripture teaches about sex and gender. For example, in 2004, the UK passed the Gender Recognition Act. It says if you live for two years as someone of the opposite sex, you can apply for a gender recognition certificate and eventually a new birth certificate. In 2015, New York City, here in our own country, made it illegal to insist on calling someone by pronouns other than the ones that they have chosen. And breaking this guideline comes with up to a $250,000 fine. In 2017, the state of California, moving to the other coast, passed a law that made it illegal for caregivers to use the wrong pronoun or name for those who have tried to change their sex. Such caregivers could be imprisoned for up to a year for what is called misgendering. In June of 2017, Bill C-16 became law in Canada in which questioning a person's claims to identify as the opposite of their birth sex is classified as hate speech and discrimination even if you simply refuse to use gender-neutral pronouns. In February of 2018, parents in Ohio lost custody of their 17-year-old daughter because they refused to support her request for hormone therapy so that she could make her appearance more like that of a boy. And you know that the list could go on and on and on. Question is, how did we get here? Well, as we've learned, abandoning God is the ultimate cause, silencing Scripture is the instrumental cause, and reimagining morality is the formal cause. Together, those foundational issues have brought us to where we are today, and this is where we are today on the issue of gender. Our culture 
has rejected the objective biblical declaration that God created humanity in his own image as male and female and has embraced in its place a subjective, unproven secular philosophy called gender theory. This is becoming one of the biggest issues of our times. It may become the issue which really ratchets up persecution on believers in our country. And so it's important. It's important not only to understand the negative that's happening, but to understand what Scripture teaches us, what we can, what we can champion and embrace and appreciate in the goodness of God in giving us man in His image made male and female. So we're going to look at this together, Lord willing, over the next three Sundays. There are several crucial facts that are important for us to understand. So let's begin then with a functional definition. What does it teach? So let's begin then with what exactly is gender theory that our culture has wholeheartedly embraced in place of what the Bible teaches. Gender theory teaches that every person has a gender identity that may or may not be their biological sex. Now, if you're already confused, don't worry. Because to promote their brave new world, gender activists have radically redefined the vocabulary regarding gender. So to, to kind of get up to speed, I need to give you a couple of definitions. Traditionally, the word sex used in this sense and gender have been used synonymously to identify a person as either male or female. So for most of us, when we say sex and gender, we mean exactly the same thing. You've got to get that out of your mind. That's not what the gender theorists are teaching. Gender theorists use the word sex solely for a person's biological sex, and, and they love to describe it as, quote, assigned at birth. You didn't realize this, but your biological sex was assigned to you at birth, as if it was something random the doctor decided, well, I think, he's a, I think he's a male. That's the idea behind this. It, it's randomly, unnecessarily assigned, they would say. So in gender theory, your sex is solely about your body, about your reproductive organs, your chromosomes, your hormones. But let's go to the word gender. The word gender is reserved for your gender identity that is unrelated to your biological sex. Your gender identity is how you subjectively feel. You may feel male, you may feel female, or you may feel something else entirely. It's your internal sense of self-identification. That's all it is. Has nothing to do with your biological sex, or may not have anything to do with it. Now, this claim, just to start out of the gate here, this claim that's at the base of gender theory, that there is some independent gender identity, is, as you might expect, completely unsupported, not only by Scripture, and we'll look at that in the coming weeks, but by the scientific data. As recently as 2011, one of the leading doctors at the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic in the UK in London wrote this. Remember, this is 2011. Quote, the least 
certain diagnosis of a person's sex is that made, or gender rather, is that made by the patient, made as it is without any training or objectivity. This uncertainty is not lessened by the patient's frequently high degree of conviction. In other words, here is a person who's involved in all of this who says, we shouldn't let the person determine their gender identity. They're not able to do that. In 2016, an article in the New Atlantis reported on a comprehensive survey of scientific evidence. Over 200 peer-reviewed studies in biology, psychology, and the social sciences. Here's the conclusion, quote, the hypothesis that gender identity is an innate fixed property of human beings that is independent of biological sex, that a person might be a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body is not supported by scientific evidence, end quote. Nevertheless, this concept of a separate gender from your biological sex, a, a separate gender identity, is the leading idea in gender theory. The acronym for the main gender identity started out as LGBT. Today, it is LGBTQIA+. So what does all that stand for? Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time here for obvious reasons, but but let me just give you definitions. L stands for lesbian, G for gay, so the feminine and, and masculine involvees in, in homosexual behavior. B is bisexual, sexually responsive to both sexes. T is transgender or transsexual. It can mean anyone dissatisfied with their biological sex in sort of a, an umbrella sense, but it's normally used, transgender is, of those who desire to assume or who do assume the physical characteristics and gender role of the opposite biological sex. Q stands for queer, or some would say for questioning. This is a person who's either uncertain of their gender identity or those who refuse to be classified, claiming that binary categories of male and female is discriminatory. I is for intersex, those, those folks who are born with some physical sexual ambiguity. A is for asexual, that is, those attracted to neither male nor female. And the plus, of course, is there are a whole lot more categories that could or may be added. But here's the main point I don't want you to miss when it comes to what is gender theory. In gender theory, biology doesn't matter at all. It's all about what you feel. And any disagreement with gender theory is considered intolerant, hateful, or they love this word, transphobia, meaning a fear of those who fall in these categories. There's an assumption, an implication, that if you disagree, there's only one reason you would disagree, and that is that you are hateful and bigoted. Well, the truth is, we as Christians should never be either hateful or bigoted. We should be gracious, compassionate, and caring, but we also can and must disagree. So that's the background in terms of a functional definition. That brings us secondly to its philosophical formation. How did it develop? Where did this come from? 
Well, as we have learned, ultimately the gender confusion of our day stems from our culture's abandonment of God, its silencing of the Scripture, and its reimagining of all morality. Specifically, however, we can trace the progress of gender theory through three important movements of the past couple of centuries. Let me lay those out for you. Three movements in the historical development of this idea. The first movement is Darwinian evolutionary theory. This is really the foundation. With Origin of Species in 1859, Darwin removed humanity from its biblical position. And as you know, the biblical position is man is made in the image of God, male and female. That's what the Scriptures teach, and we're going to look at that in detail in the next couple of weeks. But Darwin abandoned that and said instead, human beings are just another species of surviving animals. Now, shortly after Darwin's book was published, many academics began to argue on the basis of that theory that there's no absolute morality and anything that animals do sexually is perfectly acceptable for humans. That is how evolutionary theory gave birth to the second movement that you need to know about, and that is the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution. Evolutionary theory laid the groundwork for the destructive philosophy of a man whom you've heard of back in the 1800s. He died in 1900. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche took the next step from Darwin, and he argued that God is dead. That means, he said, there is no objective truth, and, and this was really important to him, there are therefore no moral absolutes. Nietzsche demanded that Christianity, which he considered to be repressive, be replaced, and here it begins, be replaced with total sexual freedom. Now, out of Darwin and, and Nietzsche, who really gave full moral expression to Darwin's views, came the sexual revolution. Sharon Jones, in her book that I mentioned, lists a series of influential thinkers who followed Nietzsche and who championed this idea that the repressive morality of, of Christianity needed to be replaced with complete and total sexual freedom. Let me just mention several of these influential people so you're aware of them. First of all, Carl Ulrich. He was a German doctor who argued for and defended homosexuality. He was the first to argue that a female soul could be trapped in a man's body. Sigmund Freud is the next, and he believed that the concept of God was a fairy tale. It was based on a child's need for a father figure. Instead, he said, there is no God. We are simply highly developed animals. And because of that, Freud said, all sexual desire and all sexual acts are normal and acceptable. Magnus Hirschfeld is the next name you need to know. He was a German homosexual doctor who built on Freud's idea, and he really became the architect of the sexual revolution. It was Hirschfeld who supervised the first sex reassignment surgery. Overlapping and in the same basic time period came an American 
whose work really gave birth to the sexual revolution in our own country, Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey referred to himself as a sexual researcher, but in reality he was personally addicted to sexual perversion. He was educated at Harvard, and he founded the Sex Institute in Indiana. His experiments included abusing children and infants. He advocated legalizing all sexual behavior, including pornography, bestiality, and pedophilia. One of his associates was a man by the name of Harry Benjamin. Harry Benjamin wrote the first textbook on transgenderism in 1966. He was the first to really champion the idea that if a person was convinced that they were living in the wrong body, their body should be fixed to fit their feelings. And the last name I want to mention to you is Robert Stoller. Robert Stoller wrote Sex and Gender in 1968, an amazingly influential book in academic circles in which he argued that sex is biological but gender is social. So this was the sexual revolution, and you can see how it, it grew from the foundation of Darwinian evolution. Man is just an animal, there is no God, there is no morality, Nietzsche said, and out of that came everything is acceptable. Now there was one additional catalyst behind the development of gender theory, and it was the cultural revolution, also called cultural Marxism. At the same time that the sexual revolution was unfolding through those men and others that I mentioned, an academic theory was coming out of Frankfurt, Germany called the critical theory or cultural Marxism, and this theory added more fuel to the fire. Now, the critical theory is the basis of the critical race theory, and, and today I just want to explain it briefly. This is not my full explanation, but it'll give you enough to know how it factors in. The critical theory, or cultural Marxism, grows, as you can guess, out of Marxism. And it argues this, essentially, that in every society there are oppressors and there are the oppressed. That society is all about power and only power. And there are those who hold the power, they're the oppressors, and there are those who feel the force of the power, they're the oppressed. The oppressors, the ruling class, keep in power by enforcing their values and their norms. Now you can see that when this theory was combined with the sexual revolution, the standard that was being used to control people, to keep power, they argued, was traditional Christian morality. One philosopher and sociologist associated with the Frankfurt School, out of which this critical theory came, Herbert Marcuse, who, who lived in the 20th century, died in 1979, he taught, this is very important, very important for you to understand, he taught that the mere tolerance of different lifestyles in a free society is really pseudo-tolerance, that it still continues to allow this repressive superstructure to exist. So Marcuse argued for there to be real freedom, all traditional views of morality and all of those who hold them have to go. Because as long as there's mere tolerance, then that's just a facade. 
The norms are still in place to control and manipulate people. In the critical theory, at the top are the privileged oppressors, and at the bottom are the oppressed victims. This is what is called identity politics. And when the sexual revolution joined forces with cultural Marxism, they decided that those who hold traditional morality and gender distinctions are the oppressors. In fact, queer theory, as they call it, says that if you believe that heterosexuality is normal, did you hear that? If you believe that heterosexuality is normal, then you are bigoted and hateful. If you believe that heterosexual marriage is crucial to society's stability, you are oppressive. You are in that oppressor category. Now, do you see how this works? That means that those in the oppressed categories of LGBTQ, etc., are the oppressed, and they are to be admired and celebrated for courageously living out their real identity, even in the face of the oppression of traditional Christian morality. They argue that a binary understanding of sex and gender, that in other words, the idea that there are only male and female, was created. That idea was created, they say, by the oppressive class of heterosexual Christian males to maintain control. Now, folks, that's where we are today. And that, I hope, will let you understand why you see what you see on the news and on news websites. That's where it's coming from. That's the foundation of it. The combination of evolutionary theory the sexual revolution and cultural Marxism have led to the demand to reject biblical morality and to marginalize, and now there is a growing cry even to criminalize all who hold it. So this is where we are. The question is, how should we respond? I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I've touched on this passage intentionally a couple of times already in this series, but I haven't walked through it entirely because I wanted to save it for this moment. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. You remember that Paul begins the second half of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He says, the first three chapters, I've told you about your calling what you enjoy because of Christ. Now I'm going to tell you, I want you to walk worthy of that calling. The first way we walk worthy is by walking in unity. That begins in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, goes all the way down through verse 16. Walk in unity in the church. Now verse 17 begins a new section where he basically says, if you're going to walk worthy of your calling, you need to walk in holiness. He begins by saying, you just can't keep living like the pagans around you. Let's read it together. Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. 
This passage says, stop living like the pagans we used to be. And as he does so, he, he outlines several defining characteristics of how pagans live. This is essential for us to understand, to understand our culture. It's how we used to live. It's how all pagans live. It begins with worthless worldviews. I've already touched on this, so I won't spend much time here. Verse 17, they walk in the futility of their mind. Their worldviews, their mindsets, their ways of thinking, the grids through which unbelievers see the world are all futile. They lack meaning and purpose. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, Trending Versus Truth. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.